Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Delaware and Hudson Canal Company, Gravity Railroad, Volumes 1 through 5, S. Robert Powell. Robert Powell, author of the Delaware and Hudson Canal Company, Gravity Railroad. You say in at the start of your book that the Industrial Revolution was born in 1829 in Carbondale, Pennsylvania. How can you pinpoint it that specifically? Well, it's 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 a symbolic date, more or less. Really, one has to. It's like, for example, uh, you know, when did the American Revolution start? Was it at Bunker Hill? I mean, you, one, one sort of has to sort of arrive at a date. I mean, it was going on. Uh, things were going on in the background. Uh, for years, or, and, and, and you needed a crystallizing event which you can sort of identify. So I chose that, I chose that date uh, as an identifying uh, beginning point, although one could argue it backward and forward a, a, a bit with, other, with other, other events probably. But the, uh, the thing which motivated me primarily with that date in Carbondale was the fact that it, uh, the, uh, the coal that was going out of Carbondale beginning in, in that, on that October day in 1829 Provided the fuel for for people for thousands of people all over the eastern seaboard to to, to take the next step to, in in the movement from an from an agricultural economy to an industrial economy, so without that without that coal it it, it couldn't have happened, and uh, so so in in a way it was like a catalyst. It really was a very an, an interesting uh, point. Uh, one could. Uh, you know, somebody put a gun to my head and say, "Why was it, why October 9? Well, you know, one could argue that, uh, that there are other 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 dates might be uh, nearby. But the one that the, the argument, the, the the convincing thing for me was that the uh, that it provided the fuel that made it all happen everywhere. What was it that happened on that date? The, on that date, the uh, this railroad became operational. It was a uh, it was created uh, literally from nothing when when these uh, when these engineers. Uh, uh, determined to get this coal to market. There were, there, were, there were no existing systems of transportation in America at the time that could have done it. The, uh, the railroad that began in Carbondale was the only, the third railroad uh, of, of any kind in America at the time. There was one, uh, a rudimentary railroad at, at Breeds Hill in, in, uh, in Boston when they were building the uh, Bunker Hill Monument. They needed, to get, they needed a tram road to get the, the granite down to the water level to get it to Breeds Hill to make the, uh, the Bunker Hill Monument. That was a three, a three mile long uh, essentially, a tram road where the cars sort of coasted down an inclined plane. There was there was not really any machinery involved. They just sort of coasted down a plane, and then there was one in Pennsylvania again at, at uh, Jim Thorpe in 1827, where that was again a a system of uh, of, of 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 incline one inclined plane down which the, the the cars rolled. The thing which is so remarkable about what happened in Carbondale is that, that it was a complete uh, system operating from Carbondale to the Hudson River. Uh, you know, 125 miles away, with 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 an amazingly complex series of of inclined planes and stationary engines and levels and all manner of of technical machinery to make it happen, and it was it, and it was done in conjunction with a with a 108 mile long canal, all of which, both of which were created out of nothing. I mean, at the time when they were doing this, 
uh, northeastern Pennsylvania was, was essentially a wilderness. There was nothing there. And so they, they, uh, they had to get all their materials and, and technology together and, uh, for, that, for that one day. And the, the astonishing thing, from my perspective, is that they were creating the technologies they went along. They were not, they were not using existing technology. They were creating uh, a technological uh, revolution in, in, in doing what they did. And uh, it's so astonishing that, that, they, that they could make all this happen uh, from nothing. The rails had to be imported from Great Britain. The engines had to be gotten you know, from, from a, a company on, on the Hudson River and, and brought there and then, and then installed. And then all of a sudden they were, be, were operational. But it, a, uh, it was a very complex system of, of, uh, of planes and levels. The coal cars were brought in on a level piece of land and the front of the coal car was then attached to a cable and they were pulled up an inclined plane, sort of like an old-fashioned roller coaster. So the engine was stationary? The, the engine was stationary. At the, at the top of the inclined plane was a stationary which pulled the engines, pulled the coal cars up to the engines. At the, at the, at the top of the, uh, at the, of the inclined plane, the cars were disconnected and they sort of coasted down a little bit, a level, and then they, then they, they did it again, up again and up again and up again. And uh, in the process of getting the coal out of the Lackawanna Valley, they, 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 they carry these cars a thousand feet in the air in a very short period of, uh, of a distance of space up this, up this very steep Busick Mountain outside of Carbondale. And so when they got them to the top of the mountain, this is where the gravity business of this gravity railroad kicks in because they had to work like crazy to get the coal to the top of the, to the mountain. But once it was there, the coal cars were let down in steps again uh, to the bottom of the mountain on the other side. And then they coasted uh, miles into Honesdale, uh, all this going downhill. And uh, at Honesdale, then they were then the coal cars were emptied in, into, a, into a canal, a 108 mile long canal. So the, the, the coal started out in the Lackawanna Valley at about a thousand feet above sea level, then took it up a thousand feet in the air. Then they lowered it down about a thousand feet into, into, into Honesdale. And at Honesdale, you're still a thousand feet above sea level. So the canal then, the, all, this, all this coal was loaded into, a, into these canal boats, and, and the canal boats function the same way that this gravity railroad functioned because of gravity. The canal boat is brought in, the, the water is let out of the lock, the canal boat goes down and goes down and goes down. And uh, for the, they, they did this for 108 miles long. It was an extraordinarily long canal. I mean, the uh, the, for example, the Suez Canal is about 100 miles long. The Panama Canal is about 50 miles long, and, and, but the DNH Canal was 108 miles long. And well, I want to back up to the cars. So these railroad cars, they would load at the top of the hill and just roll. They, were, they had no power of their own. They were they were lower. They were, they had to be attached to cables to lower them down. But they but they didn't require energy to to. But they, they were actually they had to be held back so that they because they, they would go out of they were just too much weight. They would go out of control to get to the bottom. Of so the, they were ca attached to a cable the whole time they were going down. They were going down. Yes, and and, and again the, on the, even on the downhill planes it was lowered and the car coasted a little bit. Then it was connected again and lowered again. So they were always under control. But the uh, but even even. Uh, even on the on these on these levels, I mean, the the control there were there were there were, there were people who rode these coal cars with with brakes, but they were like friction brakes, so that they were it, it was it was they were quickly turning wheels to slow these things down, you know, and uh, and to get it to get this get this coal to Honesdale and then to the Hudson River, and that was only part of the game. When they got up to the Hudson River at Kingston, they were then still a long way from New York, so they then had to take the um, 
the, 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 the coal boats, the canal boats were unloaded then into, into Hudson River sloops and then taken all the way down, uh, the, uh, down the Hudson River to New York and then unloaded at, uh, at uh, wholesalers in New York and, uh, and, and ultimately to the, to the customers. And the thing which is so astonishing about this, this, this D&H system was is that the coal not only went from Carbondale to New York, but at, at New York, it, uh, some of these coal boats then went out into the Atlantic and went both ways. So the Lackawanna Valley coal was going as far north as Boston and Providence. And then it was going down the eastern seaboard uh, as far as New Orleans uh, with, with this coal. And at Kingston, New York, the coal, the, the coal boats were, sh were, were sent up the Hudson River uh, to Albany and then transshipped uh, through the Erie Canal into the American Midwest. So the Lackawanna Valley coal was was everywhere, and it, and it, and it, and it, and it affected uh, lives all all over the eastern America. So that really, uh, that kind of uh, that that broad market area is what uh, uh, it was interests me a lot with this this industrialization of America. Well, uh, before we get much farther, I have to ask you about this because we have gotten this. Uh, this book is on five CDs, so this is nothing like anything we've had on this program before. Can you explain just what this is? The, uh, each, of those, um, each of those DVDs is, a, um, is one manifestation of, of the railroad, and, and, and each, each one, each, each of the DVDs is essentially a book, like a, like a six or seven hundred page uh, PDF, gigantic PDF file. And so one inserts the disc in, in a computer, and then and then you sort of scroll through it. So it's not like it's not like one sort of sits back and, and watches a DVD roll by in front of you. You have to sort of have to work at it a bit. I mean, it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a, a very sort of academic kind of thing. But in in a way, my uh, my whole background has been involved with academia, and so I, I'm, 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 it's a, it's, a, it's a format which appeals to me a lot. And and uh, so they are they are. Um, they're they're very uh, the, the the medium is such an appealing medium from my point of view because it it, uh, it it's it's infinitely expandable and easily expandable and revisable and correctable and and, and all those wonderful things, and uh, and yet it's it, yet it's very compact and 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 uh, the product is so wonderful on a, on, a, on a computer screen because the, the sky's the limit. How big is your screen? How big can these pictures be? How, and, 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 and it's loaded with pictures and maps and drawings and things, you know, so that the, uh, it, it's a, it makes it, it's very, I think, uh, user-friendly. And uh, I like the fact that it's, uh, that it's, uh, it's, it's so compact and, uh, and yet infinitely expandable. Now this is five volumes uh, uh, covering five different eras, of, but this is five volumes of a planned 24 volume. That's correct. Series. Yes. And the five volumes already is 2,000 pages. That's right. Yeah. And is all you working on it? Yes, it is. I have a couple of colleagues in the Carbondale Historical Society are very interested in the in the project as well. But there, uh, we sort of work together and 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 and, and make it. It's, it's. But I'm the one who sort of has this obsession with getting it into print, kind of thing. You know. So it's a. a but the uh, the 24 volume uh, aspect of it is a uh, it, it's such a broad it's such a broad topic. But the uh, the first five volumes, um, which all uh, appeared uh, on October 9th of last year, all had to come out essentially at the same time because the the uh, for example on the 1845 volume as I was working on that I may have learned something which then which then modified my thinking about what happened in 1829. And when I was working on 68, it, it, so the ramifications backwards and forwards, so that the, uh, so having gotten them all sort of 
out of here and onto that. I, I then I then spent months arguing against myself, trying to trying to prove myself wrong, and then. I thought I, th I thought I think I have it. I think I have it now, and, and uh, I then decided then I would publish them on on October nine, which was the uh, the day that the uh, the Gravity Railroad itself became operational in eighteen twenty nine. So it was a uh, everyone uh, who who knows me knows that what is Robert doing at the Historical Society? You know, fifteen hours a day. Well, he's working on this stuff. You know, and and uh, how long did you work on it before you had it in the form that you could publish? At least 10 years I was working. Those first volumes took, uh, took 10 years only because the, uh, the, 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 it is such a vast project and, and no one has ever really systematically approached it from, from, a, from a comprehensive uh, point of view because it's very, it's, very, it's very detailed and very complicated because they essentially re they rebuilt the railroad five times in the course of the 19th century, 1829, and then they did it again in, in 45 and 59, 68, and 99. So it was not a question of, it wasn't, it wasn't just like one footprint. The railroad in 29 may have gone over the mountain this way, 45 went this way, 68 went another way. And all of the, uh, the different configurations of the, um, of the railroad were a consequence of the, of the openness of the market. The, 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 every time they revised the railroad, uh, people were saying, we need more. Send us more coal. It was an open-ended market. And so in 45, they, they made a whole series of modifications to get more coal into the system. Was it, it all gravity in all the directions when they expanded? They were, yes. And, and uh, for example, in 29, when it opened, there were five planes on, on the Carbondale side of the mountain. And in, and in 68, there were eight. They what, put, what constitutes a plane? A plane is one of these inclined from the bottom where the cars connect onto it to the top where they're, where they're disconnected. And um, and then they coast. And then they go up another another plane. So there were like there were, well there were 28 planes ultimately. But the uh, but it started out with uh, with uh, just eight planes. And uh, they determined that the more planes you have operating, the more coal you could get into the system. If you have just one very long plane, you've got to wait for those cars to get out of that plane before you can put in more. But if you have lots of smaller planes, you can get more into the system. And uh, the thing which is really quite interesting from a uh, from a marketing perspective and from a, from a labor relations perspective is the fact that all of the all these efforts to get to, to get more coal into the system were very effective. They were very good at doing what they did, and so forty five yes send us more fifty nine we need more we need more we need more, and then in eighteen in the eighteen sixties the late eighteen sixties a very interesting thing happened. They they sort of they satiated the market more or less. Everybody seemed to be happy, but then that that opened the door. What a, what a door that opened! Because when you, suddenly you have all these many thousands of workers who are getting a product to market, and the market is the market's needs are taken care of. You have to cut back on production. So if you cut back on production, you're 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 negatively impacting all the workers who are producing all that coal. So that the uh, at, in the 1860s is when. Uh, labor and management began to go at it because ma management said we've got to cut back production, and then labor then they had to, then they had to lay off laborers or they ha or they had to reduce wages and so on. And so from the mid '60s until until 1902, it was just back and forth labor problems, strikes of all kinds, uh, where they where they where they the, the and and it's easy to understand both points of view. I mean the the uh, management was out there to make money; they weren't doing this as a hobby, so they had to they had to. Uh, they had to uh, control the amount of coal they were sending to market. 
and and and, and the workers, the, the the laborers, all of course wanted to get as much as possible because you get more money. Did uh, Delaware and Hudson own the coal mines also? They owned many of them, but they didn't own them all. Other other people got into the game very quickly. The um, the interesting thing about the uh, the the, the D&H had a had a had a, a running start because. The, uh, the fellows who started the company, uh, Morris and William Wirtz, in the 1820s, were clothing uh, merchants in Philadelphia manufacturers, and they provided uniforms for the federal government uh, for, the, for the War of 1812. And, um, and in partial payment for their, for, their, for their uniforms, the government gave them 7,000 acres of land in northeastern Pennsylvania. Sort of like, here, take this. You know, they, they, I think they thought they were giving away sort of scrub land. <laughs> And r remarkably, they gave away the largest d deposit of anthracite coal in, in North America. 484 square miles of anthracite coal worth millions, trillions of dollars, you know, just unbelievable quantity of coal. And, uh, but then, as I say, in, in the 60s, they then had to start controlling the market. And, and then the, the, labor, the labor management thing got going big time. I want to ask you, you say in the book that in 1848, the Delaware and Hudson was the largest private corporation in the United States. Do, do people know? Is that a surprise to people when they hear that? Uh, yes, I think it is. The, um, the, the remarkable thing was that the, uh, on January 7, 1825, the, the D&H had a public offering of their stock at a, at a coffee, coffee house in New York, the Tontine Coffee House on Wall Street. They also offered, they, they, offered, they opened their subscription books in, in Goshen, New York, and in Kingston, New York. And in, on, in one day, in, in January of 1825, they sold a million and a half dollars worth of stock, which is really just astonishing. And, and when, you, when, you, when you think of the multiple, whatever it must be, for the, what a dollar then would be worth now kind of stuff, you know. So the, when you think of the, uh, the, the vast quantity of, of, of money involved with it, but, but what they were doing, they were so profitable because America was in, in the throes of its first energy crisis because uh, the, the trees essentially had all been cut down. All the eastern uh, cities, they weren't large cities that we know today, but they were still, you know, 50, 75,000 people uh, heating their, their buildings by, by, uh, by, by lumber, wood, or maybe charcoal. And uh, all you have to do is realize, if, if, you, if there's a wood burner in your world, you happen to know how quickly a wood pile can disappear when you multiply that by 50,000 people all the trees within an immediate area of a, of a community are gone. So, so Philadelphia and New York especially were, were literally without a fuel. And so the, uh, the, it was an unbelievable market conditions because the, um, the, uh, the, this Delaware and Hudson Canal Company provided these people with the fuel. And they were very, they were, their marketing, they were such intelligent marketers. They, 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 they heated this Tontine coffee house in New York where they were, where they, where they were offering their, uh, making a public offering with anthracite coal. So uh, potential buyers came in into this wonderfully warm uh, environment heated by anthracite coal, and they, they didn't know how to burn it. They didn't know how to, they didn't know how to use it. But then the DNH sort of said, well, here's how you do it. And then, you know, we're happened to be, we're selling stock at the same time, you know. So, so they, they uh, it, they, all the variables were, 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 were just were wonderful for, the, uh, for, for, the, for, their, for their marketing purposes. How did the canals fit into it? The canal, the, uh, the, that, was the, that was the great era of American canals in the 1820s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. And uh, but the, it's, it's, uh, the, the canals were an easy way to get the coal to market. You could take vast quantities of coal in canal boats and, and, and get them to... Uh, 
get them to market. On the D&H canal, they had, which was 108 miles long with 108 locks, they had, uh, this is a, another remarkable thing about the D&H, they had the brightest and best people involved from the very beginning. They had, uh, for example, uh, building the railroad, they had Benjamin Wright and John Jarvis and James Archibald, who just had just finished the Erie Canal in 1825. And in 1826, that, that whole production team was essentially brought to northeastern Pennsylvania by the D&H, and they began building the, the D&H Gravity Railroad and the, uh, and the D&H Canal. So was the, the Gravity Railroad was supposed to take the coal to the canal? That, that's and correct. Then the canal got, and where did the canal run? The canal went from, from Honesdale, Pennsylvania, to all the way east to 108 miles to Kingston on the, on the Hudson River. And... Uh, in so doing, it was uh, the, the, the canal people would call it. It was an inland riparian canal. It followed uh, rivers, four rivers, to get there. It followed the the Lackawaxen and the Delaware, and the uh, the, the Lackawaxen, the, the Delaware, the Neversink, and the Rondout Creek to get to uh, to, uh, to get to, to the Hudson River, and and to get across. The, what the remarkable thing is that the, is this the, this canal crossed over these rivers. And for example, at Lackawaxen on the Delaware, there's, there's still, it's still standing, and it's a magnificent engineering achievement is the, uh, the Lackawaxen Canal. And the person who built these was John Roebling. And, and, and the Roebling family then, after that, built the Brooklyn Bridge. I mean, so the, the, they, they, they had the most remarkable, uh, remarkable people involved in, in the construction of, 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 their, of their transportation system. So it's actually a, a trough full of water that goes over top of a river and the boats would go yes. over top of the river. And you can go to that, you can go to Lackawaxen today and you still see this remarkable thing across the Delaware River. Where, and, 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 the, and the canal was almost 40 feet wide, this gigantic sort of trough going across the top of, of, uh, of, of the, uh, over the Delaware River on, on a wire suspension bridge built in the 1840s by John Roebling. And, and, and it's still there and still just as strong as it was when they, uh, when they, when they finished it. And, and, they, and there were four of these, uh, these, 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 these aqueducts uh, that uh, uh, were along this, this canal on, uh, to, to, to the Hudson River. And the Roebling connection is, is, uh, is it, it's typical of the D&H. They always got the brightest and the best involved. And, and all these, these, this, I can't say enough for, the, uh, for Benjamin Wright and John Jarvis and James Archibald with the, uh, with the Erie Canal. The, the, the D&H, as managers, they were magnificent. They, they, they knew what they wanted to do, and they knew they had to get the brightest and best people involved to make it happen. What, who are we going to get to do this? So they knew enough to get the, you know, that, that production team from Erie Canal, get them here, and get them on our team. When they began mining, they knew they had this astonishing resource, but they needed, they needed to learn how to do deep underground anthracite mining. If you and I were to go out there and start mining coal, we might just sort of dig a pit and fall in, and we, would, we wouldn't do it. You know, there's, there's things you've got to do. I know I would, maybe you wouldn't, but the, the uh, but the, so at that point, they, 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 they recruited from Wales 90 Welsh families to come to Carbondale and, and uh, show them how to do deep underground shaft mining. So you put, put this deep, the shaft, a vertical shaft down and then tunnels off of it. There's a lot of technology involved to make sure the whole thing doesn't collapse on you, but the, um, but the, but the idea of, of, of recruiting not just 90 men, 90 families to come to, um, to, uh, to Carbondale and to show them how to do this, 
They needed, they also needed, they, they, they recruited from Scotland, getting very celebrated Scottish shaft sinkers, as they were called, to, to do these vertical shafts down and, 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 and get to the best coal. But the, uh, the, the, they did that throughout the 19th century and, and get the best people involved. And they really were astonishing managers. One of the, um, and one of the greatest is big hero of mine, his name is Thomas Dixon, who ultimately became president of the company in, after the Civil War. And uh, he was president at the time when all these labor problems started going on. But yet he was such an astonishingly good manager with such good people skills that he would make very tough decisions. And the workers would say, Mr. Dixon, we need more money. He would say, well, I, I gave you everything I had if I could, but I can't, back and forth. And, 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 and they respected him terrifically. Well, he was, he was highly regarded by them always. And he, was, he, he, got, he moved heaven and earth because he was honest, straightforward, and, and was a very good manager. Other managers along the way were not set, didn't have such good people skills, and they were hated by, 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 the, by people who were, who were working for them. And, uh, but all throughout the century, the, the, the good outweighed the bad, certainly, and, and they, became, they became extraordinarily profitable very quickly because of their, of their skills in management and getting, getting the right people involved to help them be successful. You mentioned some people, John Jarvis and uh, somebody yeah. named Archibald and somebody named Benjamin Wright. Oliphant, who Oliphant. have towns named after them up, That's right, up yes. there. Did the company own the, own the towns that they named their, the towns after their own people? Well, the, um, it was a question of sort of spreading out. In, in, for example, in Carbondale, there's a very old cemetery called Maplewood Cemetery, which the first burials were in, 18, in the 1830s. And, and it, remarkably, some of the, there, there, there may be six or eight stones in that cemetery in Welsh, with Welsh inscriptions. And, uh, but the, uh, also in that cemetery, there are, there are plots, uh, family plots of Archibald, Dixon, Peckville, Peck, Justice, Troop, Oliphant, all these, all these families were in, involved with the company originally. And then they, they, they sort of started moving out. And so the Oliphants moved down the Lackawanna Valley, and then the, the community was called Oliphant. Archibald was named after named after uh, after James Archibald, and, and so that, so they they were all they're all it, 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 when we do bus tours in the area and, and point this out to people and they, and they can't believe that they're looking at Peck, Dixon, Oliphant, Troop, Justice, Blakely. All these all these people are there. They're they're they're, they're human beings. There's a reason. There's a name for the reason for the name of the community is there. And uh, but the uh, and they came from all over the world. I mean the uh, the. Uh, the original uh, pe uh, people were Scottish and, and, and Welsh, where the Wurtz brothers were Swiss. And then, then you can follow all of the 19th century immigration patterns into, into the anthracite fields. I mean, the, the, the Scottish and the Welsh followed by the English and the Germans. And then with, then with all the famine and problems in, in, is in, in Ireland, all the, the, the enormous Irish immigrations into, into northeastern Pennsylvania in, in the 1840s and 50s. And then after the Civil War, all the uh, central and northern Europeans, the uh, you know uh, from from Czechoslovakia, Hungary, uh, you know Bulgaria, Romania, Russia, Ukraine, all these countries. So that there were like twenty-five or twenty-six different countries where these people came from to uh, to start their lives over again in the anthracite fields. You you mentioned the the name Wurtz, W-U-R-T-S, and there's a lot of Wurtz sprinkled throughout your story. And one of them became a congressman who you said uh, 
helped pass favorable legislation toward the company. Yes, I guess it's good to have friends in high places. <laughs> they, they, the brother of these two guys, William and Morris Wirtz, was John Wirtz, who was who was also in the Pennsylvania legislature. So that so that it was, uh, I'm not I'm not suggesting or saying that that anything was was uh, un, uh, crooked or under the table. But you can sort of you can sort of you can enhance your 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 uh, your, your move by getting the right person to support your legislation and. And, and they really didn't do anything, uh, anything uh, illegal, but it was simply a question of, of, of targeting the legislation for, to take care of their needs. And, and by having somebody in the legislature would be, uh, that would help the process along, you know, so. It, Getting back to the canals, can you talk about, uh, if you were standing on the side of the canal, uh, what would you see? And they had 108 locks. Lock, yes. And so they had to have one person at each lock who did they live there or how did that they work? They did. They, that, yes. In fact, they did live at, they lived at their workstation. So that there was a lock tender at each, each lock who's, who's had a house there. And, and so when the, when the boats came to that lock, he and his family or, or, or employees then got the boat, got the boat through the lock and sent it on to the next. And the same thing, the same thing happened with the railroad through all these, all these inclined planes. Uh, they, they essentially became communities under themselves. For example, people would identify themselves as being from number four. What is the number four means number four plane? But it was really an autonomous community because they had a school there, they had churches there, they 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 they, uh, they, they, they lived at their at their workstation. And they may not have. Uh, I've I've read obituaries where. Uh, someone might say that they lived, they spent their whole life at number five, and never once were into Carbondale, which was like five miles away. They sort of, they, they didn't, they didn't move from where, the, from where they were. Did did businesses or hotels or something spring up along the canal? Did did people, like, did you ride for a, a while and then stop and stay overnight and ride, or did you go? You could, uh, there were, there were, you, one could, one could sleep on these can, on, on these on these passenger boats on the canal too. Well, they had passenger boats. But, they, but yes, they did, and but they were, but ninety nine percent of them were were uh, were coal boats. But then larger communities along the way, like Port Jervis, that, that, was a, that was a big, the canal went through a big town. Honesdale was a big town where they went through. And so there, all the amenities of a large urban uh, area were available. But for the most part, it was just one, one uh, lock after another through, through um, a wilderness and, and uh, they until you got to the Hudson River. How did they propel the boats? They pulled them without, they were pulled by horses and mules mostly by mules, and um, the, the members of the family uh, would, would operate the whole lock. I mean, the father might operate the, 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 the mechanisms to get the boats, the, the, the highly technical stuff to getting the boat through the canal, but then the children were the one, the children of the, of the, uh, of the, of the lock people frequently were the ones who were sort of accompanied the mules, walked with the mules uh, to keep them, to make sure they didn't, they didn't uh, you know, get into the canal or they didn't get where they, where they shouldn't be. But lots of, of, of boys, young people, walked uh, leading these horses and mules from, from Honesdale to the Hunted River. And if you were at a lock, how many boats would pass in a day? Oh, it, it was oh, hundreds, could be, could be many hundreds, because it was a two-way street. They were, they were coming, the empty boats were coming back, and, uh, and the loaded boats were, uh, were uh, on, their, on, their way to, on their way to the Hudson River. And the canal was roughly 40 feet wide, so there was, there was enough room for the, for the two boats to pass. And periodically, there were these large basins where they could, where one could sort of uh, spend overnight to sort of stop the whole process and just sort of, you know, wait for, wait and not do it till tomorrow. The going, the movement through the canal, so that the uh, the uh, it was a uh, just just constant back and forth. 
the uh, with the with these coal but these coal cars, by the time of the Civil War, there were they were sending 2,000 coal cars a day out of Carbondale over this mountain at that angle. Just, just They would get four or five cars through one plane, and the next thing you know, four or five more would be coming along. And uh, so by shortly after the Civil War, they were shipping a million tons of, of, of coal a year. And uh, the, the numbers are, are, are just, they just, they just astonish me every time I, I, I learn more numbers about the quantity of coal. and. Uh, but from a from a uh, American labor technology point of view, uh, an extraordinary thing about this 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 transportation system is is that, for example, a, the, a miner would be deep underground mining the coal, putting it into a coal car, and sending it from here to there. At which point, it was handed off from somebody else who got it out of the mine to get it onto a track to get it to the to the base of the uh, get it to a breaker where it was cleaned and purified and so on. And then from there, somebody handed it back off to somebody else to someone else, to someone else. Finally, it got to the railroad, and there were, there were people whose job it was at the bottom of plane, footmen they were called, at the bottom of plane number one, to get these cars going up the plane. There was another crew at the top of the plane who, 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 who took care of the cars there. Then they, there were people on, on, on the distance between the, the planes, there were these levels, and there were people who, who, who worked only on the levels. So, and, and, and the same thing happened for 125 miles, the product was brought to you. You were essentially you were you were stationary, as it turns out. I mean, you, you lived where you worked. And the thing which I think is really uh, very interesting is the fact that this it was like a, it was like a 125 mile conveyor belt between Carbondale and, and the Hudson River, because the workers were stationary, and and the product came to you, which is so. It's really an, an amazing innovation in in production. It's like it's Henry Ford in his production line, because. The product comes to the worker. You can get more done if the product comes. To the, if the worker does, if the worker has to go look for his next job, you're you're not being as efficient as you could be. Bring the product to the worker, and then then and then do what you have to do, and then pass it on. You mentioned that they had some passenger canal boats. Did they have passengers on the Gravity Railroad? They did. They they uh, they initiated uh, uh, passenger service in the uh, in the 60s and 70s. And uh, the thing which was so remarkable about this, about the, uh, about the uh, passenger service, is that they, it was an amazing source of revenue. The, uh, they built on the top of this mountain above Carbondale a 600-acre sort of picnic park, and and uh, it was nothing but sort of picnic areas, uh, 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 you know, a, a, a dance pavilion, observatories, and that was it. But people by the thousands from all over northeastern Pennsylvania came there on, on, on Saturdays. As many as 15,000 people a day were taken to the top of this, of this mountain on these extraordinary open-air excursion cars, which, which were, were literally open. They were, they were like benches on, on flat cars with a roof. And, and, and the, the thrill of it all was to ride the Gravity Railroad because there was no visible engine. You were just sort of moving along quietly. So there's no smoke from the No smoke or cinders or anything of that, of that sort. And one of the one of the portions of the of the rail line um, was called Shepherd's Crook, and in order to get from the top of the mountain where this park was to, to the valley floor, the, they put the track so it followed the ridge lines essentially, so that the rail, railroad went off this way and it sort of gradually came around a bend and it went back this way and then it sort of swung down and got to the valley floor. So you, you you couldn't send a car just sort of send it down like this, but you could bring it down gradually. 
at this celebrated Shepherd's Crook on this on this on this on the light track, as they call it, the empty cars, where they call it the light track. You, as the cars were sort of coming down this way, sometimes these pa these passenger vehicles were there were so many uh, cars on the track. You could you could see that you were on the you were on the car here, and you could see the front of the car down on the, down below you, and it was like it was like this like gigantic snake coming down the mountain. How fast did it go? 20, 25 miles an hour. And the thing of it is, you, at one point you could you could coast for 14 miles, just on this open air car, through the, through the through this gorgeous countryside. And on that 14 mile line, they then extended the railroad down the uh, down the Lackawanna Valley. That's when they extended it to Archibald in 1845. They ex extended it to Oliphant in 1859, then Scranton in 1860. So this all this all this. Uh, Movement of cars made possible by by forces of nature. You you mentioned a uh, an actual locomotive. They they tried the Stourbridge Lion. Correct. And I remember reading about that as a kid. That was a famous train, right? It was. It was the first uh, locomotive, first steam engine operational in in America. It was brought. They they. Uh, it was brought to to serve the purpose of pulling the cars on on these. In the original configuration of the line, there were three sections. Where there was a long stretch where these cars had, they they they, they thought they would pull them with these with these these steam engines, the first the, the first uh, steam engines in existence, and the Storbridge line and and a couple two other engines, the Delaware and the and the and the Hudson, were 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 brought here to uh, to pull the cars on the long level. Uh, regrettably, the rails were not strong enough to sort of support the engine because the the rails were made out of out of uh, out of wood hemlock hemlock logs with a little narrow facing of, of metal on the top of it and uh, they didn't have the, uh, the the technology that we now have to, to make to, to, to keep to get the rails as rigid as they'd have to be so they they experimentally ran this this storebridge lion on on rails in Honesdale and it it sort of it was not successful they, 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 they it, the rails were not up to they couldn't handle the weight of the engines and so then they then decided that they, that they, they, they couldn't use them and they took them off the tracks and that was it. So they then started moving the cars on these long levels by horses and they, they felt that to be more, that was a much better way of doing it than, than with these, these large engines which were, were, which were too large for the, uh, for the system. But the, but the Storbridge Lion, uh, most of it is now in the Smithsonian and one can go there and have a look at it. And it, and it, it's a rem it was a remarkable, uh, remarkable uh, engine but uh, it, it was not it was too much weight for the, um, for, the, for, the for the transportation system that they then had did they um, eventually start using railroads just as regular railroads they did uh, yes by uh, by the 1870s they were steam locomotives were becoming were becoming uh, more 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 prevalent in America and then the, the, the they followed the valleys and and, and they, they instead of Trying to go over mountains, they they went the sort of the long way and, and got got over got got to their got to their markets. So, so in in the 1870s, the um, the first steam engines in in the conventional railroad uh, started to appear big time in America. But the gravity system, which was so interesting, it was an existing successful transportation system, and so they continued to use it for until the end of the 19th century because it was an in-place successful operating system. And the, the steam locomotive uh, system was just sort of getting itself going. So it would be unwise, I would think, and I think they thought the same. You just don't sort of cancel what you have. I mean, it, it's working 
let's keep using it as long as, as, as we can. And the thing which was remarkable was is the, the, uh, the, this, this, this park, this, this Farview Park on top of, of, of the mountain was an amazing source of revenue. 15,000 people were spending uh, 50 cents a piece to get up there. So that's like $7,500 on one day, which is a lot of money in 1868. You know, so, the, so it was very profitable. And people came from as far away as New York, Boston, Philadelphia to ride on this, on this, on this celebrated railroad because it was, a, it was such an, a novel experience and, uh, and, and people came from far and near. It, it was like it was booked solid every year as soon as, from, from, from April until, until, until November uh, with people coming from far and near to go to the, to, uh, to the top of the mountain. Fresh air, sunshine, away from the dirty, grimy industrial valleys below. And uh, it was a huge success. And uh, that, I think, probably kept the system operating as a coal transportation system a little longer than it ordinarily might have. But, but, uh, but uh, since they were taking passengers, they might as well continue to, to ship coal. And because, uh, as you say, by the 70s, 60s and 70s, steam locomotives were becoming a, a quite a reality. And you can, you can send a lot more coal being pulled by a conventional steam locomotive than through this, this um, by that point, archaic transportation system. Did, did I read your book correctly that the, the standard gauge for railroads is what it is because of the Romans? That's, yes, it is. The, uh, it, it, the, uh, when they were creating this gauge for the gravity railroad, the, the width between the wheels, um, the people who were creating these, these, these American engines and American cars were connected pretty well to the same people. To the, they had colleagues in Great Britain where, they, where, they, where they, the, the British had a little bit of a head start on us in this. And uh, so Stevenson was his name uh, in, in Great Britain, was asked, why have you made the gauge of these, re, the, these, uh, these uh, cars 51 inches, four feet three? And he said, I don't know, but that's the, that's the width of the, of the wheels on the, uh, on the colliery wagons in the, new, in the Newcastle district of Great Britain, all the, in the coal mining, where they've been mining coal for, for hundreds of years. So that 51 inches was the, uh, was the, was the standard uh, width of the, of the, between the wheels. And, and they really weren't sure why they were doing, why it was 51. And then remarkable things happened. The, um, later on, uh, during some excavations uh, on Hadrian's Wall in, in the north of, of England, which went from coast to coast, uh, in England, to sort of the barbarians were above it, and then the Romans were below it. You know, so that the uh, but this this wall across England, and uh, during excavations, they they discovered that, that 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 some of these Roman roads uh, with, in, with, with that were used in constructing Hadrian's Wall, they, they, the, the, these these wagons had let ruts left ruts in the stones and in the wheel and in the earth there, and they measured the distance on those. And what do you get? What do you think? Fifty-one inches, four feet three, in, three, three eight, four feet three inches. For fifty-one inches, was was the width of the, of the, uh, of the, uh, of the wheels on these Roman, on these Roman work vehicles. And then you keep backing the thing up; it becomes more interesting. They backed it up then to uh, to, uh, to 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 the, to the Roman army with their chariots and 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 the Roman Empire, the chariot wheels, the the sort of Ben Hur Ben Hur type chariots, fifty-one inches. So, so that the, the Romans during the occupation of Great Britain, when building, building Hadrian's Wall, they, 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 they adopted the same 
51 inches, which happens to be the Roman, they call it a, a double stride, left, right, left, which is 51 inches. That 51 inches, you take, multiply that by 1,000 and you get a Roman mile. So all of these numbers are so loaded, they go, they, they go right back to, 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 to ancient Rome. And they, they even go back to Pompeii and Herculaneum, excavations there, 51 inches. And, and, and it's because of these, these Roman chariots. And so that you had to, if you, if you, if you made them wider, the, these, these, the, these carts and so on wouldn't have fitted in the, in the, uh, in, in, in the existing roads. So you know, don't mess with success, make them 51 inches. And, uh, and so that's, that's, it, it, it's, it's astonishing that, that uh, literally from you know, Pompeii and Herculaneum, you, we get 51 inch gravity railroad cars uh, going out of, out of, out of, out of Carbondale. Uh, what did the canals do in the winter? The canal closed. It closed uh, when, the, when, when it froze up. I mean, it, at, at, by, by late November, December, the canal was frozen. And it was always a big game to make sure you don't get frozen in. Because if you get frozen in, somebody's going to steal your coal over the winter. Get through the system. You, you only got paid for a complete trip through the canal. And so uh, the canal was, was closed, uh, drained, and closed in the, uh, in, in, at, the, at the approach of winter. And then getting it filled up again in the spring was a big problem. And, and, and how would they fill it up? That's a lot of water. A lot of water. They had feeder, they had feeder ponds and feeder lakes and rivers and stuff all to where, they, where these bodies of water would flow into, into the canal to, um, uh, to, to fill up the, the canal. And there's, there are places in the area of near Honesdale, for example, today where there are, there are lakes and ponds that are 20 miles away from the canal. But they essentially could, they, 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 they established these water courses from from let's say for example one was called Oak Oak Pond, where you, the, where it just followed whatever path it had to to get to the canal. Then they filled up the canal with that water miles and miles away. And, Did uh, the canal ever leak? That was a big problem when they when they opened the canal in '28. Uh, they had they had they had problems with leakage on the canal from '28 until the late '30s because you just sort of pile all this, dig this this four foot deep just plain dirt. Dirt, yeah. And the water is going to wash out. You're going to have they had problems with muskrats and all kinds of animals burrow, burrowing in the in the uh, in the sides of the canal, holding, getting it to hold water. So literally, they, for over ten years, they 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 battled with the problem of making the walls rigid. And uh, by 1839, they had it they had it pretty well under control. So they and they became so it started to become very profitable in 1839 because they managed to get their their their. Their, their their canal walls solid again, and uh, they 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 and they kept the same way that they kept revising the railroad. They did they, they revised the canal. It started out being 36 feet wide at the at water line, and then 20 feet at the base of the thing. And they they uh, they, they 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 modified the depth of the canal um, repeatedly in the 19th century. It was first of it was four feet deep, which could take 30 tons of coal in a boat. Then they made it five, uh, five feet, then five and a half, then six, then six and a half feet deep, and so by the end of the uh, end of the 19th century, they were able to transport 130 uh, ton boats. The boats were uh, holding 130 tons of each boat was holding 130 tons of coal. Now this this book CD book is published by the um, Carbondale Historical Society and Museum. If somebody goes there, what do they see? We have. Um, we have a very nice relationship with the city of Carbondale. We established on the third floor of, of, of our 
very beautiful City Hall, which is a National Register building, a, a very lovely uh, late 19th century uh, Richardsonian Romanesque building. And uh, we, uh, we have a wonderful relationship with the city, and we've, we've converted the whole third floor into a DNH transportation museum. We have, we have two rooms packed with DNH stuff of all kinds, and uh, then we have a couple other galleries which are filled with sort of more or less conventional uh, 19th century, early 20th century uh, Americana type things, all with a direct Carbondale connection. So it's, it's, we're, we're in a very nice relationship with the uh, city of Carbondale because uh, they did not need the, uh, the third floor and we got permission to use it and then we've over the years have gotten quite a number of grants and funding to, we really, I think we're, we're, we're quite proud of that, of the third floor. It's a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful asset for the, uh, for the city of Carbondale because uh, not that many small towns like Carbondale have a, a full-fledged uh, museum. We're open 25 or so hours every week, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a uh, one can easily and clearly have a museum-type experience. And you are S. Robert Powell, Ph.D. What kind of Ph.D. are you? I'm a Ph.D. in French language and literature from Indiana University in 1974, which is a long time ago. But the, um, uh, it's a... Uh, most of my uh, professional life ha has been as a, uh, has, as a, as a teacher. Uh, I, I taught at, uh, in the State University of New York and, and the City University of New York and, and Susquehanna University and Penn State and, and other places. I guess that's maybe at, at the end Penn State. But, the, um, but the, uh, that, that background, I think, really prepared me in a way for, for this DNH stuff because my uh, my my doctoral dissertation is long. I'm very I'm I'm I'm, I'm an old windbag from 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 start to finish. So I I I like big works and volume and stuff. So that the um, the um, but that academic perspective on it is sort of like divide and conquer. Take this one configuration at a time and get it sorted out. Get get it get the details in order here and and not uh, and 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 don't just um, don't just breeze summarily breeze over because that's that's that was a big problem I think with with much of the writing on the on the DNH over the years and there hasn't been a great deal but one of the problems is is that people sort of lump it all together and they they're not they're not sure whether they're talking about what was going on in 29 or 45 but and, and, and it makes a big difference so 10 or 15 years ago I decided I was going to approach this sort of step by step inch by inch and work my way through the century and uh, and that's that's where I am now. The, these first five, I, I feel very good about about having liberated them from within within this this brain to. Uh, but there's still 19 more volumes that you plan. Yes, and uh, the remarkable thing is is that the uh, I get so energized by by the whole notion of of publishing and and, and writing. I, I when I when this happened on October 9, I uh, within I announced at that point that five more of them are going to be published this October of of, of 2015. But I got so energized by the process that I've now finished four of those, which are about ready to will will, will come out in October. So I think I, this may, the the the, the twenty four volumes may happen more quickly than I uh, than I than I had originally planned, which is fine with me. But it's sort of like the uh, like a log jam breaking. The first five were, uh, I, I think, are, are are crucial to everything that follows, and and then. Uh, I'm working on one now, for example, on, on working horses and mules. I only focus on working horses and mules on the railroad and the canal, so I can really approach it with any, with, 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 with in the greatest detail. And 
the thing which is quite extraordinary with our with our, our Carbondale collection is is we have I think probably the best uh, newspaper archive in northeastern Pennsylvania. We have newspapers in Carbondale from the 1820s on, and we have them all. And uh, they've all been microfilmed. And uh, I think I may be the only person ever to have read all of those newspapers, but I've been doing that for the last, you know, uh, 15 years. And, 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 and journalism in the, 20th, in the 19th century was of the highest level in, 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 in many places. And Carbondale is an extraordinarily good example of that. They're, they're, they're wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful newspapers with with amazing articles uh, about life, about the railroad, about the community, and uh, and so reading those has essentially made it possible for me to, to to sort of sketch out these 24 volumes. That's what I want to talk about. For example, there's one volume in the in the in the ones I'm working on now on on uh, water power, and not that I'm sitting here to. to to, to blow my own horn, but nobody but me knows that there were water wheels on some of these planes. I'm the only person who knows that, and I know that only because of these newspapers. Water wheels that did what? That, that, they, in, that, were, that provided the power. Instead of these stationary mm -hmm. steam engines, water, water wheels were at the, at, at the heads of some of these planes, and the water wheels were on, the, on, on, on five planes between uh, Honesdale and Carmen at one point, it, which is just, people look at me like, say, Robert, you are, you're, you're crazy. What do you mean? I, I, I'll prove it to you. Let me show you. And I, and I, and then I then I, I back the process up and and uh, but that that's that's an amazingly interesting process too is is uh, I guess the, I guess the term is called uh, cultural amnesia but but people in Carbondale who are who are surrounded by the by the remnants of this railroad sort of say to me the most amazing things they say you know that you know what that is and I say I I, I play down I listen they tell me these things it is so wrong and so off the wall, but people sort of begin to invent their own sort of facts about what they think something is. And uh, What is still there that you can go and take a look at? There are, there are many of the sites where the engines, the stationary engines at the top of these, uh, of these uh, planes are still, you can still visit the site. The engine has been gone, but has been taken. But you can, you can see, you, you, especially like in the wintertime, you can sort of look at the mountainside and you can sort of see like a path through the woods. You can, I can t that's plane number five. I can, you, can see, you can sort of see where, they, where these planes were. Are there markings there or how do you figure out when you're there what you're looking at? Well, it's, it's difficult and, and the, uh, we are blessed to have some remarkable maps knowing where these, where the, uh, pretty much where they were. So if, if you go to the site, you can sort of think, well, I, okay, I'm at, the, I'm at the head of plane number five, then therefore a plane must have gone down that way. And then where did they go from here? You look around, you think, oh my God, they went right up there. You can sort of see a path through the woods where they went. Where they went. So it requires a lot of sort of on-site uh, exploring. You really, you really have to be on, on site to, uh, to, uh, to, to get a sense of what happened there. And uh, most, of the, most of, the, uh, of the terrain where this railroad uh, was established is now privately held, so there are a lot of private property problems of, of trying to, you just can't go walking on other people's property. So there's a lot of, there's, but, you, but, but you can, from the, from, for example, Route 6, you can, I can show you, ah, that's where that, that's where level, you follow my, you can sort of, I can show you where something was. I may not be able to walk to it, but I, but I know where it was, you know, and. Um, is there evidence of the canal? A lot of evidence of the canal. There's a, um, there's a, uh, uh, all the historical societies and many communities between Carbondale and the Hudson River are part of this thing which is called the Delaware and Hudson Transportation Heritage Council. So we're like an alliance of all these organizations who are interested in the canal and we meet four times a year at various sites several times uh, along the canal. There's a, there's a meeting going on 
in today as we speak in Huguenot, New York, at a, at a canal site where the canal went through. So the, and there are, there are sections of the canal where they, there's still water in them. And you can walk along the towpath and you can really get a sense of, of, uh, of what took place there. And uh, in many cases, the, the canal has been obliterated by the 20th century. But there are, there are spots where one can, uh, one can go and, and get a sense of this is how the canal got from A to B, you know. What became of the Delaware and Hudson Company? The Delaware and Hudson Company went through lots of sort of changes in the, in, in the, in the 20th century that where it was, it was uh, bought by other companies and it's largely now non-existent. It's now been, it's now been sort of a part of large conglomerates and, then, and now it no longer, no longer exists as a, uh, as a, uh, with, 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 uh, with engines but the, uh, and, 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 and rolling stock. But interestingly enough, many of the, uh, of the diesel engines which were made in the 20th century used on the D&H by the American uh, locomotive company in Schenectady, New York. They call these engines Alcos. Uh, those engines are such fabulous machines, they're being recycled now and being used on other railroads. There's a railroad uh, through Carbondale now called the Delaware Lackawanna, where actually you see DNH engines coming into Carbondale uh, as part of another system. They, the, 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 the engines are recycled all the time on, on railroads. So here's a very good engine uh, which is, has been. Um, has been now made a part of the rolling stock of, of, of as I say, like for the Delaware Lackawanna. And uh, one of my colleagues uh, in, in the uh, organization, his name is Corey Conway, is very focused on these Alco engines. And he and I have produced this uh, a, a DVD, a conventional DVD on, and it's called Alco Thunder Returns to Carbondale, which is these recycled engines from 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 uh, from 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 earlier from the, from the twentieth century now in uh, in uh, in operation again. So so there there are bits and pieces of the uh, of the DNH which sort of come into the modern world, but for the most part it, it's uh, it's gone regrettably. But and, and again with the Carbondale Historical Society, if someone wants to know more about it, what, what do they do? Well, we're we're uh, you know like everybody else, we have a web page. Uh, CarbondaleHistorical.org, and uh, so that we're very reachable that way, and uh, and uh, we have all the you know all the usual telephones and all that sort of stuff. But the uh, but the uh, through the web page we are very we are very contactable, you know, and and uh, it's a and as I say we're open 25 or so hours every week, which is which is uh, which is I think pretty good for a small organization. There's only about a hundred of us in the organization, and uh, but we have a lot of a strong commitment to Carbondale and Carbondale history and, and uh, just about every day somebody comes up the stairs to the third floor and uh, and and we're very happy to show them around it's uh, so it's we're not crowded to the point where we have to have crowd control but we, we have visitors which is good we are out of time we've been speaking with s robert powell he is the author of this series of books on cd delaware and hudson canal company gravity railroad thank you very much my pleasure thank you You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.